Hello and welcome to the podcast. The US presidential election is off and running with Donald Trump winning the Iowa caucus this week with 51% of the vote, a record. When Trump first put himself up for president, it's argued that the media never took him seriously or the constituents he represented. Running for the presidency for a third time, the prospect of him becoming president again despite facing umpteen charges is being taken very seriously. How difficult is it for public service broadcasters to handle this election when one of the candidates still disputes the outcome of the last one? Well, who better to discuss this with than Jim Nocte, who has covered many, many presidential elections over the past 40 years. Jim was a political correspondent on The Scotsman and then moved to The Guardian before becoming a household name, first as presenter of Radio 4's The World at One and then of the Today programme which he stood down from in 2016. He's now a special correspondent for BBC News and, of course, still presents Radio 4's Book Club. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Looking at your former colleague, Justin Webb, I've just seen a photograph of him in Iowa, where I think the wind chill has taken the temperature about 30 degrees below zero. He looks pretty miserable. Um, do you wish he'd been there, despite the cold? Yes, of course I do. <laughs> and I'm sure, even, I'm even sure Justin uh, was feeling cold, but I doubt if he was miserable because he was on the scene, which he loves being and, uh, you know, which he's so good at. Um, yeah, I mean, there is a point here, though, Roger, which is, does Iowa matter as much as it's cracked up to matter? Um, Iowans, of course, think it does. And it has its place as the, you know, the great sort of harbinger of what lies ahead in the year. But it's a pretty odd one. If you look at it, there are somewhere around three quarters of a million registered Republicans in Iowa. About less than 15% of them voted in the primary. And of those, what did it end up as? 51% voted for Trump. Now, if you look at those figures... What does that tell us what's going to happen in Ohio and Virginia and Georgia and, um, you know, Nevada, where the election will probably be decided in November? The answer is not very much. It tells us something about Trump and the Republican Party, which is interesting, but that's about all. Could I ask you then, uh, I mean, you don't uh, you don't differ from the general view that Trump is going to win the um, Republican nomination, do you? It's hard to see how he can be beaten. But anything you say about Trump risks being overtaken by some spectacular event of a kind that we can't imagine. Uh, Will one of the court cases cause an implosion in his political strategy? Well, it hasn't so far among his strong supporters. And I would guess that it, it won't until the nomination is well and truly settled. Indeed, Super Tuesday, which is on the 5th of March, 14 primaries across the country with New Hampshire and South Carolina before that, it may well be that Trump is all but guaranteed the nomination before the first of his federal trials opens the day after Super Tuesday. Can you believe it? Scriptwriter's dream. On Wednesday, the 6th of March in, in Washington, D.C., this is the case where he's charged with insurrection for inciting the rioters on Capitol Hill on the 6th of January 2021. And I think in the view of a lot of legal observers, the one that holds most danger for him. So he may well be nominated before the court cases proceed. And in that circumstance, it's very hard to see how he can be knocked off his perch until the voters get their chance in November. I mean, if you're in prison in the 
United States, as I understand it, you could still run for president. So you could theoretically, technically, you could have him in prison. And uh, The dear old founding fathers, who are, of course, invoked constantly by uh, not least Donald Trump himself, didn't think of coping with the possibility of somebody who was in jail running for president. But that's where we might be. Of course, don't forget there's an appeals process and his whole legal strategy so far in preparing to face these 91 federal charges and the charges in Georgia for election interference has been delay, 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 delay and appeals and the Supreme Court and all the rest of it. So whether a cell door would clang shut on him, even were he to be convicted of some very serious charges, before November the 5th, I think is an open question. But look, he's almost certain to be nominated. I think, though, Roger, there's another side to this story that is only just beginning to come out, and that is that even while Trump, in one of his stump speeches, is excoriating Joe Biden for losing it and being demented and all sorts of things, you know, Sleepy Joe, the man who can't string two words together. Even in speeches where he's doing this, Trump frequently loses his thread. He goes off, the polite way of putting it would be at a tangent, but he goes off into the wilderness talking about magnets. Do they work in water? And I mean, completely unrelated to what he's talking about. And I think, you know, there is quite a question as to whether he can hold it together until November. And I think physically he's looking pretty awful as well. So, you know, we're in the situation where we've got an 80-year-old president, you know, who doesn't look as sharp as he once was and doesn't sound as sharp as he once was, and a guy who's beginning to show signs of wear and tear, because I don't care how thick your rhinoceros skin is, and they don't come much thicker than Donald Trump's. 91 charges many of which carry potentially ruinous jail sentences, must get to you sooner or later. So I think we've got to build in the question of human frailty to this calculation as well. As in all things, Jim, as in all things. But what I want to focus now on, really, is this, the problems he presents to the press and to the to journalists gen- generally. I mean, when you delivered the 2017 Cudlick Lecture, uh, you said, um, referring to the Trump presidency, There hasn't been in living memory in Western democracy a threat to freedom of the press of the kind we see there. And then I noticed that Margaret Sullivan wrote, I think a couple of weeks ago, she's the Washington Post, of the Washington Post, an eminent, very eminent uh, journalist in the United States. She said, the public doesn't understand the risks of a Trump victory. That is the media's fault. Democracy is in the balance. Here's what must be hammered home. Trump cannot be re-elected if you want the United States to be a place where elections decide outcomes, where voting rights matter, and where politicians don't baselessly prosecute their adversaries. Is she overstating the case? I did a documentary for Radio 4 um, in broadcast in November, with a year to go to the election, in other words. It was in the literally in the, in the week in which this year we'll have the presidential election. And it was called, in Radio 4's wisdom, Election Countdown, America on the Edge. And the whole thesis, really, was not expressed by me talking in terms about threats to democracy, but talking to people on both sides of the aisle, as they say in Washington, Uh, For example, John Bolton, former national security advisor to Trump and a very well-known right-wing hawk, who said that he believed that the damage of a second Trump term would be irreparable to American democracy. Uh, 
and various others saying that in one form or another democracy was on the ballot because of what Trump himself had promised he would do in the second term, you know, pursue his enemies, dismantle uh, a lot of the democratic institutions in D.C., which most people believe are actually a buttress to democracy and not, as Trump would have it, an impediment. And so it is terribly difficult to deal with him as a journalist, particularly working for uh, the BBC, which strains, quite rightly, to stand back a little and not take sides in a political contest in the way that, you know, Fox News does, or I would say GB News in this country now does. Um, And that means that you really have to deal with Trump by talking about what he says and what he has done, and not simply expressing an opinion that you think that he could be a danger to democracy. I leave that to others to say. But this is fiendishly difficult on a practical level. I mean, looking at, you know, general position now, after all of the reporting done about the insurrection and what happened on Capitol Hill at the very, very end of Trump's presidency, um, I think we saw figures which suggest around 70 percent, perhaps 77 percent of Republican uh, voters um, do not believe uh, that there was such a thing, that it was what we would say an insurrection. I share your incredulity, Roger. I really do. And, you know, you, you... You don't find it hard at a Trump rally to come across someone who will say that this man has been sent by God to save America. I mean, here's a man who, in a civil case, has been judged to be a rapist, uh, who has been judged by a civil court in New York to have defrauded the taxpayer by inflating his assets in order to get benefits, um, who is facing 91 exceptionally serious charges, none of which, incidentally, he has directly denied. He doesn't say, I didn't do it. What he says is, I was allowed to do it because I was president of the United States. I mean, he doesn't deny that he had documents at Mar-a-Lago in Florida, which if a young Marine in the White House had taken home, you know, from the office, uh, would find himself, uh, you know, court-martialed and probably banged up for many, many years. And Trump had piles of them. You've also had the Trump campaign issuing um, TV ads which say that Trump was God's caretaker sent by God. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But when you're dealing with that, the fact is a significant section of the American public believe it. So when you're reporting this and what you hope to be in an objective way, you're having to choose often between very, very broadly, lies on the one hand and relative truth on the other and yet a lot of your journalists or training people in the BBC said, well, you can't express opinion about that. You've just got to say on the one hand, on the other. And I think this is what people are struggling with now. Well, look, you're, you're right. There is a, a problem when someone steps so far out of what we might call the mainstream of political democratic argument that we're used to in Western democracies and we believe is you know, is sacrosanct. When someone steps away from that to the degree that Trump has, and there's no argument that he has, you know, he finished his Christmas message by saying to his opponents, may you all rot in hell. Well, I mean, if you can imagine a British politician of any standing issuing a message like that, I mean, first of all, there would be a chorus of laughter that would destroy the person involved. And secondly, I don't think they could survive in office. And America these days is operating in a different sphere. But, you know, to go back to your point about the difficulty, the way to deal with Trump is not to think of phrases with which you can pontificate about how awful he is. It's simply to tell people what he is saying. Because there is no deception in Trump. 
I mean, there has never been a, a candidate, in my experience, who has been more open about what he would like to do, more open about who he admires, namely Putin, Xi Jinping, uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. He said they are all uh, admiral. They're all friends of his, of course. Yeah, but if you believe... But Jim, Jim now that's admirable. But if you believe this guy is actually a real threat to democracy and he, he say, and the public buys into his views or at least tolerates them, do you have a, a larger responsibility as a citizen than as a journalist? A journalist simply says, presumably... You report what it is, and you trust the public. Well, 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 hold on a second. What's going on with Republicans believing, vast majority of Republican supporters believing, that he wasn't involved in an insurrection in the White House? Well, uh, I actually, uh, step back from that for a second, because I think um, once they start to see it again, when the case opens on the 5th of March, that might change quite rapidly. But look, the, your central point is a very important one. How do you express, if you feel it, a certain outrage at some of the things that he says. Well, frankly, it isn't for me to get hot under the collar and start waving my arms about and choking with emotion in talking about Donald Trump. But it is my responsibility when I talk to people who are observing him to report precisely what they are saying about him and why. And it is much better to hear the case against Trump put by some people in his own party, the people who run the Lincoln Project, for example, who are Republicans who have determined that the man should never set foot in the Oval Office again because he's a danger to the Republic and to democracy. They should be saying it, not me. But what I would do were I out there today, and I hope to be out next month, is make sure that as many of these people as possible get to put their case on the air so that they're not dropped, drowned out by the bombast of Trump, who discovered in 2016, in the election when he was uh, elected to the presidency, that demagoguery still works. That was the lesson of that campaign. I mean, he was saying things that were demonstrably untrue. But, Jim, the problem is that, that a large part of the public will not listen. And people will say, if you focus on that, look, you are biased. Typical liberal press, typical liberal me media establishment, we'd expect you to say that, so we discount it. So if you try and just focus on the facts, you're in a situation where we now live in a world of alternative truths, or almost, you know, there can't be alternative facts, but you would think that the case. And so when, for example, Trump debates and tells a whole range of lies, um, what is a presenter to do? If you were now to be given an interview with Trump, how on earth would you do it when he would just deny, well, almost, if the earth is round? Well, if someone refuses to... I mean, Trump, you will notice, incidentally, and this is quite an important point, Trump simply does not do interviews with anyone he does not believe is essentially on his side. So someone on Newsmax or Fox, although his relationship with Fox has become quite strained in the last two years, because even at Fox, I think they think he's gone, he's gone off his trolley. But um, look, the way to deal with him is simply to go for him on facts and get him to lay out what he believes and then present an alternative to him and see how he reacts. Now, if people will not listen to that, and are impervious to any kind of argument, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you can't force people to change their minds if they don't want to. But what you can do, I think, is make sure that the truth about what he's saying is out there. I mean, here is a man who said, just before he was elected in 2016, that when given information by Vladimir Putin and given information on the same subject by the CIA, would prefer Putin's version. 
Now, that's a pretty extraordinary thing to say. He's never met an authoritarian he doesn't like. Now, I think you can reveal that simply by straightforward journalism, by practical journalism. But there's a point that you raised almost in parenthesis there, Roger, that I think is a very important one. And it's about the the public sphere in the US when it comes to information and the discussion of politics. In this country, for all the imperfections of, of our media, broadcast and print, um, there is a public space in which most people uh, have a foothold. Here it can be something as simple as watching Question Time on BBC One or, you know, watching parliamentary coverage on whatever outlet it is. Most people are engaged in a kind of national debate. And if there were a leading figure in either either of the two big parties, in government, for example, who got into any of the scrapes that Trump has got into, Pussygate, the famous tape, the... The, the tax fiddles, which have been demonstrated and on which a court is ruling now, a civil court, on the question of damages in New York, the, the charges. No politician in this country could survive that. I mean, they just couldn't. Now, for two days, in the States, there is no common space where people can agree to debate issues in a normal, argumentative but civilised way. People have been put in their little silos where they tend only to listen to people who agree with them. And they believe that anything outside... You know, for years, it's been, if you watch Fox News, they will tell you not to read the New York Times because it will poison your mind. So they don't read the New York Times. And so you have a, a, a segmented uh, society, which is extraordinarily dangerous. And there is no common debate. Just to... Push a bit further on this point. There is a segmented audience, but 20, 30 years ago, perhaps, anyway, there would be a basic respect for facts and then the political analysis. Correct. Was, you know, and policies and so on would differ. What we, re- what we learned from the Fox News case, which was taken against them by an polling, uh, opinion polling firm that uh, was libeled by Fox, and yes. Fox had to pay incredible sums of money. Indeed. We saw internal, internal memos. Uh, which showed that the management, uh, the owners, the presenters, the producers, all knew that Trump had lost the last presidential election. That's right. And yet could not afford to say so on air because of the damaging effect on their business. In other words, their natural supporters would switch off, if you like, or Trump's and go elsewhere. So for pure financial reasons, journalists distort, ignore the truth. I found that the most disgusting and depressing thing I can imagine. But I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's chilling, and it's it's not simply appalling because you realise people have behaved badly, unprofessionally. It's that you're ushering in if you you know walk into that particular room where that is the behaviour that is expected. You're ushering in something which I think threatens the operation day-to-day of a democratic system because if you don't have rules that are respected and even, although it sounds a fuddy-duddy thing to say, conventions that are accepted, you know, you can't do that. You can't go further than that. What America is having to face up to now, what do you do when someone says, well, I don't care about that? I'm going to step beyond. I'm going to do things that you said nobody could 
ever do. I'm doing them. What are you going to do about it? And that's the issue that I think the Congress will have to wrestle with. And it is why this election is so important, because um, I think the Democrats will retake the House of Representatives. The Senate is very difficult not for them to crack, and they, they might even lose the sort of wafer one majority that they have there at the moment. But if you had a situation in which Trump was elected, which I still believe is not the, the most likely outcome, but anyway, if Trump were to be elected, and if he had a House with two Republican majorities, even though many of the people in those majorities would not be natural supporters of his, I think it would be an extremely dangerous situation. And you, you, know, you don't have to go far in Washington to find people on the right as well as the left who, who say that day in, day out. The point I would make to you about how we cover this is I think it's exceptionally important that these particular arguments, the one that you've just made about Fox, uh, are laid out for people to see. I mean, I think it's really important for people here and indeed in you know, other European countries where there's you know, a pretty functioning liberal democracy of the kind that we've all come to cherish, more or less, despite all its flaws. I think they need to realise that this very thing is being challenged. When I did that documentary back in November, you know, a radio documentary, you're trying to sort of make it sing on air. And it's quite difficult if you're just wandering around offices in Washington and you can say, well, I'm standing outside the Capitol and so on. But it doesn't really have much of a zing about it. So what do you do? Well, I thought, why don't we go to the Willard Hotel? Now, the Willard Hotel is two blocks from the White House. It's a wonderful old Victorian hotel, a Victorian era hotel built, in, I think, in the 1850s. And it was there that Steve Bannon, one of Trump's great lieutenants and a very very hard-boiled egg. He and Rudy Giuliani and others were in there planning January the 6th. And this will all come out in the trial, but they've got the recordings. We know Bannon was boasting about it in his radio show, which goes out four hours a day, incidentally. I went on it about two months ago. And anyway, the thing about the Willow Hotel is that it's got a place in American history. Not only was it also the place where Martin Luther King wrote the I Have a Dream speech the night before he delivered it at the mall in 1963, but it was to that hotel that Abraham Lincoln came in January 1861 after his election, skulking in because he'd there'd been assassination threats in Baltimore. So he had his hat pulled down over his head, got off the train, went in, it's all in the first chapter of Gore Vidal's novel, went into the Willard Hotel, and it was there that he wrote his first inaugural which ends by appealing to Americans not to hate each other, but to ask for help from the better angels of their nature. Now, what I think we've got to say about America now, and I think you can say this without breaching any sort of code of journalistic impartiality, you must say that what Trump is doing is challenging America and saying, look, all this crap about the better, better angels of our nature. Now, that's, that's rubbish. We're just in here to win. I'm going to defend my people. I'm going to send 12 million undocumented immigrants back over the Mexican border. You know, I'm going to do a deal with Putin. If Western Europe is invaded, I've already told them I'm not going to do anything about it. John Bolton said to me, there is no question in a second term that Trump would pull out of NATO. Now, he he couldn't do that without congressional approval, but he could hobble the alliance. It would change the whole structure of uh, Western defense that's been in place since 1946. There's no argument about that. That's what he says. And I think what we've got to do is to say he says this 
And by the way, dear listener, if he did this, it would be the biggest challenge to what we might call the American democratic settlement since the Civil War ended in 1864. And can I bring it towards this country as well and look at some developments in this country? Um, And uh, this is a delicate issue because you and I both worked for the BBC and so on, but I have appeared on GB News, perhaps you have as well, and others, but we now are having the development of uh, news channels in this country on the right and funded by uh, millionaires uh, who seem to be altering by the way they behave the conventions we have about the way in which news uh, should be presented. And we seem to have in a regulator, Ofcom, and in this government, a willingness to give them an awful lot of slack, even though there are large numbers of complaints, I think up to about 15 now, to GB News about the way in which they're performing. And in a sense, uh, what they're doing is, um, in the view of a number of people, by putting MPs, Conservative MPs, to interview Conservative ministers and presenters to uh, express their opinions, whether in a news or a current affairs show, that's the big argument, which is which. But you can quite see that they are aping to a degree what Fox has done, though not going as far as Fox. Do you see this development as a basically healthy one in which a range of different views can be expressed or a worrying one in the light of what's happened in the United States? Oh, it's worrying. And I think anybody who looks at what has happened in the States, if they do care about you know, the free flow of information and proper debate, would have to be worried about it. I think it's true to say that comparing GB News and Fox you know, isn't entirely fair. It's We're not in that situation yet. But I do think Ofcom has now got a situation that it's never faced before, which is not a complaint about a particular programme, a particular presenter, you know, a general kind of balance issue running up to an election when the rules, as you well know, Roger, become extremely tight. I mean, these are legal obligations on people who have access to the public airwaves to behave in an impartial way. And I think Ofcom are facing a challenge to that from GB News, which is perfectly open about it. It says, look, we've got an agenda. This is what we believe. And too many people are not getting our point of view, so we're going to give it to them. We're not much bothered about anyone else's point of view. Now, how Ofcom deal with that I don't know. Uh, Michael Gray is the chairman of Ofcom, Lord Gray, you know, former controller of various channels at the BBC, a former director of television, and as you know, a, you know, a lifetime operator in the media world. And I think this is one of the biggest problems he's ever faced. Uh, and I think it's extremely important that, that it's grasped. Because, you know, if we get to a position, even in a, a relatively small country like our own, where we do start to get outlets which have got access to the public airwaves, you know, not somebody doing some nutty podcast from a bedroom in, you know, Colchester or something. That's fine. Well, you can do that. I mean, you know, it's a free country as long as you don't break the law. But when you're a public broadcaster, you have obligations. And the question is, how does Ofcom enforce these obligations in the kind of society that we've got now with the kind of wildness that you get on social media and I think it's extraordinarily difficult for them but it's also extraordinarily important that they somehow get it right and that we do accept that if you have a license to broadcast that carries with it some obligations about a level of fairness not you know not an absolute duty to have 
two minutes of one side and two minutes of the other. That's the kind of impartiality that doesn't make sense. But an obligation across the piece to be fair-minded. And somehow, I think that's got to be enforced. And you would not wish to see the habit of having uh, MPs from a particular party interviewing their own Chancellor of the Exchequer on air. You would not see... You don't want to see that continue, would you? I can't believe in the... In, look, uh, here's a point. I, I do think the common sense of the viewer will kick in here. Of course, there'll be partisans, and it doesn't matter whether it's right or left, who would want to see that kind of thing. But there'll always be a minority. And I think the idea that you could you could sort of pull the wool over the eyes of the population at large by saying we're going to have a proper political discussion of this. The only thing is that the four people involved in it all have the same view. I mean, just people aren't going to watch it. They really wouldn't watch it. Well, Jim, uh, Jim I'm heartened by your... Um optimism in that respect. Could I just say one thing before we go? One thing before we go, and I'm very grateful you've, you've given us so much time as you're obviously locked in programme making and so on. But, I mean, Jim, you seem to me to have undiminished enthusiasm for politics and broadcasting, whatever. Do I take it you have no plans to retire? None at all. I, well, I don't sort of recognise what the word, word means, really. Um, you know, I carry on. The BBC, you know, want me to be a special correspondent for BBC News, which I'm delighted to do, which involves, you know, doing some long-term things for Radio 4, you know, of a documentary nature and so on, doing my book club and what have you, but also contributing to daily news programmes and um, dealing with events, dear boy, events, which, of course, keep us all going. Oh, no, I mean, the, the idea of packing it in is, is not one that's ever occurred to me, really. I'll wait for the Grim Reaper to deal with that. Well, thank heavens, Jim. Anyway, the Grim <laughs> Reaper have a very blunted blade as far as you're concerned. Thanks very much for joining us. Roger, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, our thanks to Jim Nocte. And please remember that all our pain members will receive the podcast almost a week in advance. So if you want to hear it first, please sign up now to patreon.com forward slash bewatch. Patreon.com forward slash bewatch. And you'll also receive my blog. So that's only £1.99 per month. I hope you think that's a bargain. Well, there are other bargains, but isn't that expensive, is it? Well, that's all for this week. And as you know, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quingenti. It is a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.